Life isn't about answers, it's about questions. Asking good questions is key to learning. That's a proven fact. And there's no more important question than why Jesus. So get ready as we dive into the conversation together on the next episode of the Why Jesus Podcast. Welcome to this Reformation Day podcast. We're hanging out. It's me and LT. That's right. Just two of us. If you're listening and you can't see, well, now that's why you only hear the two of us. John might join us a little bit late, but wanted to hop on here. We missed last week. We're back this week with a podcast where we're going to be talking about what to do in the face of tragedy, a Christian response to a lot of the pain and and really suffering that we're seeing in the news. We're going to be reacting to a trailer of a film that just released and no, it's not the Domino Revival. And and we're going to be talking about a little bit. I have, I have a little surprise that LT doesn't know about. Um, I've got more up my sleeve in way of Reformation Day today. So that's what we're going to be talking about. I'm glad that you're here. I see Reform Brian is here. Grace and peace to everyone. Welcome. Glad Reform Brian is here. Hey, I like the new logo, Reform Brian. I like how it looks. Uh, for those that don't know, it was black and white before. I like the the red and white. It looks pretty nice. LT, how are you doing today, brother? Oh, you know, living the dream, man, living the dream. So doing pretty good. How about Grinding. you? Grinding. I'm, I'm good. We we just got back, well, not too long ago, took my my family out trick-or-treating. We we did the very unchristian thing to participate yeah. in Halloween. And tiss, tiss, tiss. my, uh, my young, well, I got, I got left out to dry because originally, th- this is the costume that I'm wearing tonight. My Martin Luther costume, but um, I was supposed to be Travis Kelsey to go with my uh, five-year-old who was going to be Taylor Swift, and sometime between four o'clock and the time we were going to go, she changed her mind and wanted to be a robber, (laughs) and so I had to scrap my Travis Kelsey costume and ended up just rocking the, the, the reformed reformation day costume it was fun a little bit cold it's in like the 30s here so it was it was a Mm. quick run around the neighborhood though the the best part is my my youngest would run up to everyone instead of saying trick-or-treat she had her little robber mask on and she would yell i'm here to take all your candy (laughs) and and it was just hilarious so what about your other daughter and your wife uh, what were they doing um my oldest daughter decided to be a unicorn and so she put on her unicorn headband and dressed all sparkly. And my wife still had her Halloween makeup on from uh, earlier in the day where she was working. So it was a good time. It was brief. It was nice. And ultimately, it it was good to get home. They still only had a little bit of candy. And then we swapped out their candy for books and toys and I'm going to take all the candy to church and give it to high school kids because my kids don't need any extra sugar. So fair enough. There that, you go. That, that was our evening. Yeah. <laughs> Do all that you can. My evening was a lot less fun than that. I mean, I was just working pretty much. I worked all day and then I got home and I worked on YouTube and then I read a book and I came here. <laughs> <laughs> what, bu- what book are you reading? 
Uh, I'm almost done with Uncle's Tom, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, that's right. You said you were reading that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, tonight uh, we thought it'd be appropriate to have a little bit of a conversation as we're seeing the news, as we're seeing what's happening in Maine. We're seeing still the news reports every day of more things happening, um, more death in the Middle East, and. It really, if you just scroll through your news feed, wherever it is, your local news or the global news, you're seeing tragedy and pain and suffering. And so we thought it'd be appropriate to have a little bit of a conversation of how as Christians do we approach tragedy and death and suffering? How do we answer some of uh, the often brought back challenges uh, about where is God in the midst of suffering? And ultimately, how can we as as Christians do something? Is is prayer all that we have, uh, or is there more? And so that's a lot of the question. And I just wanted to to start out with this thought because I think oftentimes when we think of tragedy, we often are thinking right now on the global scale. But when we're dealing with tragedy, we have to remember that it comes in many forms in many places, and depending upon where and when that is will very much de- change how we approach it. And what I mean by that is we have global tragedy, you have local tragedy, but then you can even have like personal tragedy. And I think there's multiple levels of this. And so we're going to address some of those, but also understand that we are not the authorities on all things. Um, th- this is our perspective and some of the ways that our faith traditions approach these things and talk about these things. Uh, and so I'll put the question out there, LT, let you kind of think on it and talk about it. Some is what are some of the ways that Christians can help in tragedy? What are the things that we can do and that we often turn to that can be a help? And maybe we'll even get into some that aren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, definitely one of the first things that comes to my mind is it all depends on kind of what tragedy we're talking about, what kind of impact your course of action and so, like, for instance, you mentioned, you know, the idea of, like, personal tragedy. In case of personal tragedy, uh, for instance, actually, right now I have a friend who's going through a pretty rough time. Um, we actually just talked not that long ago. Uh, he's dealing with a lot of, like, depression and hmm. went through a really rough breakup and stuff. So, hmm. um, like, I'm talking – I was talking with him just not that long ago about, you know, suffering. And so, in that case, like, the way I, I know I approached it was more of, like, just listening um, hearing them out, taking time to listen to mm. what was going on. And I think that's one of the first things when it comes to personal tragedy, especially uh, when you're someone you know personally on a one-on-one level, very you know close to, is just listening to them out. Hear them out. Um, let their hearts kind of get the weight off, you know what I'm saying, um, and, and speak. And because there's a wisdom, not only is it good for a person who's suffering to kind of verbally process what they're going through, and it's not, it's also good for them to know that there's someone out there who cares to listen. It's also good for the person who is listening uh, because the more information you have, the better your advice can be. Um, mm. And that's just, that's just practical. That just makes sense. Like if you answer a question before you know a whole matter of a thing, you're just being foolish. Like the more sure. you listen, the better you can give, the better advice you can give when it is time for you to give advice. Um, and so like when I think of personal tragedy, it's one of the first things that come to my mind. Um, and then the second thing I think that would come to my mind is that when you do speak, uh, make sure it's not just pithy 
little um, affirmations or quotes or whatever. Like, make sure that you think about it, you pray about it, and when you speak, you actually say something of worth and value. Um, oftentimes, that means going to scripture and um, speaking something that you, the Holy Spirit is leading you in. Um, mm. I would say, I, I, I would say that for personal tragedy, it's the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, I don't know uh, what your thoughts are in that regard. Yeah, well, I think right now on people's hearts and minds is the tragedy they see on the news. And, and so that's usually yeah. what, what I go to first um, when thinking about, okay, what what do we do? What, what's our response as Christians? Um, and I think our immediate response is a good one, but it gets misinterpreted by the world um, in that our first response is prayer. And And mm-hmm. I think that we've learned that not because that that's – just something good to do, but that's what we see Jesus doing. That that when mm-hmm. when Jesus encounters even personal turmoil and tragedy, what does he do? He goes to the garden and he prays, um, yeah. and he and he seeks the the Father. And even in the midst of tragedy of the death of Lazarus and 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 these types of things. So, I think prayer is essential. And if we're if we believe God exists, if we believe He has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if we believe the Bible to be true, then we must also believe that prayer has power. Um, that the the prayer of the righteous availeth much. And that isn't to say that you or I have any righteousness of our own. But what that means is those who are in Christ, who are not condemned, who are given the imputed righteousness of Christ, our prayers carry weight and power. And if scripture says that we should believe that. And so then our prayer and, and our prayers offered are not nothing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's mm-hmm. my, my first gut. But um, I think also at the same time, then, then the, the next question is, okay, then what now? What yeah. um, prayer is, is a, should be a part that should be the, the common denominator. And I think then that will determine if we're talking about something like the global situation in mm-hmm. uh, in the Middle East right now, I think now what would be, okay, I, I think I have to listen. I have to learn. I have to mm-hmm. pay attention to be able to rightly mm, engage with thought and conversation and, yeah. and not be given into the emotion of what's happening. Because if all that you do is cycle through photos and images of what's coming through um it's heartbreaking but at the same time you it, it becomes very difficult to know how to even act mm-hmm. um and so like we've said on on previous podcasts where we've talked about the the israel hamas situation the israel palestine situation it's more nuanced than people will say and so i think that um where i would be driven to next would be an a biblical understanding of lament and mm-hmm. and this this broken heart before God, more than just a prayer of salvation or a prayer of healing or a prayer of peace, um, but a, but a real lament. And both of those things I think can have great impact on me, but also the people around me to have their hearts and minds turned toward that. Uh, Where it gets really difficult in global situations is, well, then what else can we do? And sometimes Mm -hmm. that, that gets really, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what else in that regard. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, when it comes to global affairs or catastrophic events and catastrophes and those types of sufferings and evils and stuff, um, definitely one of the first things that 
definitely comes to mind is the concept of of prayer. Um, I think another thing that comes to my mind is normally large scale things like that require um, a systematic approach or or a, a congregational approach. Maybe it would be a better way of saying it. Mm. Uh, where it requires a body of believers to respond. I mean, not saying that there aren't cases where individual, like where no one else is doing anything and there's an individual who goes out and takes a leap of faith, but most more times than not, what's most effective is when a church as a whole responds to a large scale catastrophe. Sure. Um, And so I think about one of the first things I would think about when it comes to that type of suffering is asking as a church, what could we do in this situation? And that might vary Mm -hmm. depending on what it is. So, for instance, I know from um, my uh, within the Mennonite circles, um, there's this. It's going now. The name slips my mind. Um, it's like the Mennonite something something. It's basically this relief mission. Uh, uh, these missionaries that after a disaster happens, they will go into the area, like a hurricane or something. They'll go into the area and they will uh, be there within like so many hours or something to help clean up after disaster, um, mm-hmm. help look for um, people who might be lost or endangered or in need of help. And they will go in and start um, helping with repairs and things. And then like, they'll have sometimes follow up teams that help repair buildings and things. So like as, as a church, sometimes you can look at a situation and be like, all right, how can we best utilize the things God has given us um, to now go out and not just pray for these people, but now be the hands and feet um, to deliver the message of Christ by serving these people the best we can. Sometimes, it, that, again, it looks different. Every different scenarios look different. Um, but that's a, one of the things that comes to my mind is that a lot of these large scale um, things require a community response. Well, and yeah, and and I think that community response looks like a few ways. One, you can send people like what you said. I think a, a big community response, and this is what I've appreciated about our denomination. We have something very similar where we just, it's called the EPC disaster relief fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it is, is it's a pot that gets filled up by congregations giving. And um, as that is needed, it gets sent to local churches in the affected area for the local mm-hmm. churches to do the work of the gospel there. Um, it's not that we yeah. couldn't send people, but we really love the idea of, cause so often when people say, well, where, who do I give money to? How, where can my money go to help? I can't mm-hmm. physically go there right now, but I could donate. And so many. So one of the things that I appreciate is we funnel that through the local churches on the ground. So if it's a church mm-hmm. that's been affected or an area, we we hopefully get to let the local church be the hero um, by yeah. funding what might be needed. Um, it doesn't work perfectly in all, all tragedies, but I think that mm-hmm. – um, yeah, I think a response is to give money. And for us affluent Christians in the West, um, money can be helped and needed. I think the real challenge becomes uh, knowing where and how um, mm-hmm. to vet to vet what you're doing and how you're doing. Um, because even at, with a lot of this Israel and Palestine stuff, there's a lot of mm, sketchy business type stuff. For, and for a long mm-hmm. time, people have been raising money for Israel and the uh, Christians, evangelical Christians raising money for Israel. And, and, and you wonder like, has, has that money been going to things that you actually wouldn't approve of? And mm-hmm. it becomes really, really hard, um, in that, in that instance. But I definitely think giving money, um, can be a, a good response. I also think that um, some type of a- interaction um, 
in some way relationally with those that are affected, if possible, is always a fantastic thing. So if it's a local tragedy, um, and there's been times in our local high schools where students have taken their lives and to be able to be there and hear the needs of the the principal and the school and the things of that nature, I think to be in relationship with people that way is really important just to be listening. Um, but unfortunately, globally, that that isn't really an opportunity. Um, and then I think also Christians should be ones that are on the forefront of change, um, yeah. of changing things for the better. And the one difficult thing about this topic, I would say nowadays, that that we are have very recently been confronted with um, in a very real way is with the access to the internet and instantaneous news, um, social media and feeds that allow yeah. us to know what's going on around the world at all times, or at least perceptions of what's going mm-hmm. on around the world at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives us a sense that we have to be actively involved in every crisis. We have to, we, we feel almost obligated or a sense of responsibility for everything that goes on in the world um, as if it's right in our backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a phenomenon that is really only relevant to our time period. Like if you go back even a hundred years from now, like what was the, the Americans wouldn't really know instantaneously what's going on across the ocean. It would take them months to find out news that was going on across mm-hmm. the ocean in Europe or whatever. Um, so when it gets, they to the would, point, it gets to the point too, that like, even if, even if we do know. Like let's let's go to the the model of Jesus. Did Jesus heal everyone? Mm-hmm. Right. Like we we see a lot of the stories of the people that were brought to him, but there were plenty of people I'm sure that I, didn't. I mean, I I still have to think about that. Um, I think it's Jesus who says the poor will always be with you. Uh, mm-hmm. Where he's talking about like this, mm-hmm. there is this idea that like obviously as Christians and as uh, people who have compassion on others. We would like it to be that there would be no more poor people and yeah. all sick people could get the care they need. And, um, uh, you know, in a perfect world, that's what we would want, but it's never going to actually happen. And I know I remember talking to my brother about this. And he's like, it's a sad reality that we don't ever like to say is that we will never, there will always be poor people. Mm-hmm. There always will be people in need. There always will people be people suffering. There will always be something. Uh, doesn't mean we give up and throw our hands up in despair. Um, but that is a reality that we have to sometimes come to terms with as well, uh, that when we do try to help others, that we have to realize we do have limits. Well, and, and not only that, but it's only the Christian worldview that has an answer. All other worldviews will fought, will seek for an answer to the pain and the suffering and the tragedy, but it will come up short. And so mm-hmm. um, every other answer to poverty apart from Christ will fall up short. Um, Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that all poor people need or all suffering people need is to be told about Jesus. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is any solution apart from Christ is a half measured solution. Um, And, and, and that's, and that's what you're saying is that there'll never be an eradication of poverty or of suffering completely. It's not possible. I mean, the whole one of the big purposes of when as Christians, when we when we serve others um, is obviously to care for those physical needs and to hopefully by doing so be able to also care for their emotional and spiritual needs as well, Mm -hmm. um, which includes the gospel, which includes getting them 
to understand why we care, like understand why the Christian cares about these people in need and who are suffering. It's because of what Christ has done is because of his example mm -hmm. of a suffering servant. Um, so yeah, like that's, that's one of the, that, what's one of the biggest things when it comes to Christian care um, is that there's something greater going on here. And I mean, that is the hope within Christianity that our suffering is not limited um, to just some sort of finite world with a bleak ending. Um, like the idea of like, a, like for instance, humanism is this idea that, well, we need to make this world as good as possible because this is all we got. Um, and so they try their best to eliminate poverty and try their best to eliminate disease and illness and try their best to create economic systems that will be favorable to everyone and political systems that will be favorable to everyone. Um, but at the end, if we all become worm food, like what difference does it really make? Uh, but when it comes to the Christian message is that there's more than just this world. There's more than just that. Even when you do suffer, your life wasn't meaningless. Even if you did suffer mm -hmm. and were poor your entire life, um, that suffering doesn't have to last forever. Um, and there's a, a message of hope that goes beyond this world, even for those who are suffering currently. Well, and, and so that gets it gets us into apologetic question that I think is one that gets asked a lot that I think some time here spent would be good. And that's just simply this. How can God exist in a world with so much suffering? A God that mm -hmm. is all-powerful, all-loving, um, all-knowledgeable. He knows all things. He sees all things. He's eternal. If, if those are the descriptions that we, we believe about God's character, yet suffering exists, how do we reconcile that uh, because so many, I, I, I see it all the time, and it, it gets it gets said so often, particularly when you engage the younger generation um, on college campuses and in youth ministries, and and saying things along the lines, "Well, if I were God, I would take away all the <laughs> suffering, right?" And I mean, yeah. and and that that attitude is one of like I would want no one to have pain, and and that's that's great, but I think at the same time we have to at least in our theology of suffering, our, our understanding of scripture, we need to be uh, really nuanced maybe in our, in our perspective and willing yeah. to go into this conversation of, well, where is God in the midst of suffering or mm -hmm. how can God even exist and suffering exist? They seem like uh, two opposites that if one exists, the other shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely the interesting thing about this topic it always boils down to there's two sides of the coin, the philosophical and emotional. Sure. Um, and depending on the situation, you always have to discern it. But when it comes down to, I think, the broad scale discussion, like when this comes up, whenever tragedy comes up and people are disconnected to the tragedy, but it at least spurs in their mind like, well, this is awful. Like, why would God allow this? Um, and you approach it more from a philosophical standpoint, there's different ways you can approach it. Um, one can be the more logical standpoint that many apologists like to point out is how do we have concepts of good and evil in the first place? You can go down that route. Um, you can also have the concept of responsibility in a sense that God has, has given responsibility over to mankind to take care of the earth and the decisions they make have consequences, mm -hmm. one of which could lead to pain and suffering. Um, and so there's like different aspects and ways to approach it depending on 
what angle you'd want to take sometimes when you got when you approach it from the philosophical light purely yeah and i I do think most people that bring it forward there's an emotional more often than not it's an emotional question right an emotional question of suffering either i'm suffering or someone i care about has been suffering or someone i know closely um and if that's the case you you're telling me your god is good i don't believe you and i think that, that there's the way that i would approach that is i would ask more questions I would not give mm-hmm. a pithy response or a, a logical conclusion as to why God exists. This this question is not a question uh, that hasn't been answered and that doesn't have pages and pages and pages written about. But instead, I think this is an opportunity to display compassion in the midst of a difficult question. The goal in me answering this question, it would not be to convince someone asking it that God exists. I, mm-hmm. that, that people that go into it with that perspective, I think, have the wrong perspective. Instead, my goal is to win the the person I'm talking to, and by winning yeah. them, I mean like engaging them in such a way that they they are going to leave this conversation going, huh? Okay, I can talk to Christians about this, right? Like mm-hmm. we, I, I think that we see too many sound bites online, and we see too many other times where people get gotten right. They oh, they get put in their place by the response. Like that's that shouldn't be our goal. That that yeah. I mean that sh- that shouldn't be the goal, especially when talking about this. Especially when I mean I, I think back to there's one story in particular. I tell it all the time. I've probably told it on this podcast before, but it's the story of Steve Jobs. Young Steve Jobs walking up to his pastor with a National Geographic in hand and saying, you say that God loves everyone and knows everything, yet this kid is starving. And the pastor gives him just a pushed off response and doesn't really engage him. And he never walked back into a church. And just imagine the brain of Steve Jobs turned toward the gospel instead of just my beautiful Mac computer that I'm streaming this on right now. Um, and and that's the difference for me. I don't think the pastor was wrong necessarily, even in what he said, but I think that we can be right and still wrong at the same time. And so do I you think, think there is a place at all for those logical essays and discussions and debates to be had? Absolutely. And I think it's in the confines, most likely of trusted relationship. Like I would have that conversation with someone and I would push that conversation with someone who knew me and I knew them. But if I were doing like street evangelism, uh, my goal would switch to being more, I, I want to, I want this conversation to end with the person feeling like they had a good conversation more than I convinced them of something. Mm-hmm. I was actually, I would have almost, I don't know if why, but I almost would think about it almost in the flip, but not quite like, so I agree in the sense of like street evangelism stuff. I think I would avoid trying to go down that very philosophical route. Cause normally when people who are random strangers who um, try to challenge you on that topic, they are normally coming from a very emotionally charged area and you know sure. nothing about the situation. So Absolutely. like I would not try to touch that with a philosophical route. I would try to figure out their emotional pain and resonate with that and then point to the gospel. Uh, but I think, I guess in my eyes, when I think of the proper place oftentimes for the philosophical side to come out is in either places of academia, places of where you can flesh out your thoughts more thoroughly on paper. Um, and I would say also, um, 
I, I would agree then in a, in a certain sense, if you have a developed trust with someone to be able to lay it out for them and explain it to them if they are approaching that topic. Um, so I think I agree in a sense of like, yeah, if it's someone you don't know very well, but they're coming at you with a charged attack about suffering, um, don't approach it from that angle. But I think in terms of like academia, so that people can kind of look into it and research it and understand the logic behind it on their own time or, you know, whatever, or in terms of a very close relationship where you can explain it more thoroughly and you know the mm -hmm. person has trusted you. Yeah, well, and, and I guess, yes. And and my thought is, but in both, the, in the sense, like I want this to be, to be more than one conversation. Like my yeah. goal isn't to get this to just neatly wrap up in one conversation and we move on. No one's mind has changed very rarely in one like quick conversation, right? And especially mm -hmm. if we're talking emotional things wrapped up and all these other things that, that come alongside of it. And so I, I'm I'm switching my my perspective oftentimes to be more of a marathon approach than a sprint. Yeah. And so I'm fine conceding points or not pushing very hard in an effort to win the the marathon, not necessarily the the leg of that race. Apologi so apologetics in general is like a game of inches i mean you slowly you slowly work at a topic and work with someone um and slowly are take tearing down walls as they come and i mean for uh, for a lot of people uh for a lot of people it's a layers of emotional and logical hurdles like it would be wrong to say it's always all emotional it'd be wrong to say it's always logical it, it's it's layers there's, there's layers there um and as you as you work with people and disciple people and um, do apologetics and things, you kind of work through those layers. You're like, all right, here's here's the emotional side. Here's the emotional problems you're dealing with. Um, let's address that with, let, let's address those as like with charity and with the understanding and stuff. Uh, here's some of the actual legitimate logical issues you have, which are spurring on these emotional things as well and making things worse. So let's talk about that. Let's, let's have a back and forth and discussion about those logical topics. What makes the most sense? Um, and you kind of work through all of those um, and the Holy Spirit keeps working, working through those discussions and working through those conversations. Um, and the whole, through the Holy Spirit comes the point of conviction, Lord willing. Well, and, and I mean, there would be some, and yes, a hundred percent, the, the reliance on God bringing through the power of his Holy Spirit conviction or understanding illumination to the word of God being presented. I also think there are some, some quotes and things that can be given as a, a form to meditate, ruminate, think on. Uh, one of them yeah. would be, I, I think that you can make a pretty clear case from the apostle Paul that he says, um, having God's presence and having hardship is better than not having God's presence and not having hardship. And, and this idea of the thorn in the flesh that he's going through. Um, but mm -hmm. he, he comes to the understanding that, that, uh, God says to him that his grace is sufficient for him. Right. And so that my, my grace is sufficient for you coming to that understanding and giving that idea out there to say, well, this is what the Bible presents as saying the presence of God is so beautiful and good that to lose that and hardship, we'd rather have hardship and his presence than to strip it all and, away. I mean, even in the Psalm, uh, the one Psalm where it talks about the Psalmist mentioned something along the lines of uh, my joy is greater when I'm in the presence of the Lord. I forget exactly how it's worded than when 
the Gentiles, uh, wine mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. abounds, um, and their prosperity abounds. Like I have greater joy than they do in their greatest of times because of the Lord. Um, mm. that sort now, of concept. I do think, and I also will approach this very differently talking to an unbeliever versus a believer. I, I think context oh, yeah. of the situation is very different. If I'm having this in-house conversation with a believer who's doubting or concerned, it's it's different than an unbeliever who uh, is engaging with these topics for the first time. Mm-hmm. Because with a believer, you can appeal to scripture pretty clearly to to make your argument. With an unbeliever, it, it takes a little bit a little bit more time for that. Uh, especially yeah. when, when talking about it. And so I, I think that when we're considering how we approach this, I, I think the place that I would try to get to and to leave it would be an understanding of, okay, there, there's pain, there's suffering, there's all of this, and there's hope that the Bible gives that, that scripture points to, but there's also this idea of biblical lament. Um, and it's Psalm Psalm 10. I pulled it up here. Let's see if it, oh, yeah, it does work. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't. Um and it just starts here. Uh, I love I love this question um, as it begins, because I think we've all been in situations like this. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. And it goes through all of this, even comes to verse four. In the pride of the face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. And if we Scoop all the way down here to the end. Um, you can go back and read it. But we we get to the end here uh, of verses 16, 17, and 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish mm-hmm. from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And so there's this question at the beginning, why Lord do you stand far away? And this question is never answered in the Psalm, but yet the Psalmist can come to the end and still declare the goodness of God. And so I think that there's something for us to be learned in prayers and Psalms of lament of what it is to give our anger and our frustration and direct it towards God and and engage God with that in in a in a prayerful way mm-hmm. that still recognizes him as authority. Uh, I think the book of Job um is, is one of those that that really speaks to this deeply. Um but I think psalms like this also are places that if I'm engaging someone um I would point to. Now I do think and sometimes go for I it. mean also when I think of this topic sometimes I think people feel like they have to leave like when when they're suffering and they're praying about their suffering or they're going to god about their suffering sometimes i think people feel like they have to leave feeling a sense of peace or like they need to have some sort of feeling of reassurance and you don't always seem you don't always get that within your walk through suffering and through grief Mm -mm. um and i think about the book of lamentations where um there's this question that's posed at the end if i'm not mistaken it's posed at the end where it's like um or uh, like it's appeal to God and basically it's like, but, or have you uh, judged us forever? I forget how he's worded. Like if you could pull that up, end of lamentations, I think. Yeah. I'm pulling it something up right along now. the lines of, it's like a question. Mm-mm-mm. Here it is. Pop back over. So lamentations five. Uh, let me zoom out just so we can see a little bit more. 
Uh, da, 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 da. Where's the question? Uh, why? So, so why? Well, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Mm-hmm. And that's how it ends. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I mean, I, I I point that out only to only point out the fact that sometimes when we go through suffering and we go through grief, uh, we cry out to the Lord. We do, and even in Lamentations, you see like there's this, there is this concept that God is still good. He is just in what he's doing and he's still mm-hmm. holy, mm-hmm. but he doesn't really leave the prayer conversation like God is, God, you know, I, 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 I know for sure you're going to deliver us. It's more like, like, is this, is this going to be forever? Like there's a question mark. There's, there's a sense of, I don't know if this will ever end. And, mm-hmm. and there doesn't seem, it, there's, there's almost like a mixture of feelings. Like I, you want that peace, you're aspiring for that peace, but it's not really quite there, at least not fully. There's not this mm-hmm. full assurance there yet. Um, and that's something that's common and typical when you go through grief and suffering, that you'll have periods of time where you pray and you're seeking God and you seem to end your prayers with questions without mm-hmm. complete certainty, at least. Um, mm-hmm. And there's even a couple of Psalms that do that. I think um, there's a couple of Psalms that end like that, where it's like the one ends saying, uh, friend is my only darkness and, and the psalm ends that way um, darkness is my only friend or whatever yeah so like yeah there's this there's sometimes during grief and suffering we don't always feel reassured or always have a feeling of assurance at all times even when we do pray and seek out God but it's the continually endeavoring continually laying ourselves at the cross continually wrestling with God um, that leads to us having a better understanding of him and his relationship to our suffering. Yeah, um, and and I think that when we when we start really digging into these things, we find that there's so much more here to unpack than a trite answer, one way or the other, can be given. Um, and and I think that it can be easy. Uh, to want something to happen, to think that we have the answer. But, um, people, people don't need, people don't need you to give them more theology in the midst of their pain. They need compassion. They need compassion. They're not going to remember what you said. And this gets to like the, the walking into a hospital room, the going and visiting your friend who's, who's in the middle of, of something horrible, the reaching out to a friend who's, who's lonely. They don't need your theology. They need compassion. And they're mm-hmm. not going to remember the argument you gave for why God is so good. They're just going to remember that you were there. And mm-hmm. I, I think people are afraid, some, uh, I don't want to speak say all. I think many people are afraid to engage people that are going through very hard things with the truths of God. Uh, and so they end up not. But I think that just your presence there speaks more loudly to what you believe as a Christian than just um, being able to to give some some word of encouragement or even to give a scripture verse of some kind. Generally, in my experience and by what I have observed, um, in times of extreme emotional anguish, um, theology doesn't really like trying to explain theology and systematically it doesn't really go very well. Um, it's more of the cons- consolation. And if they're a Christian, you appeal to the gospel, uh, but you, just, mm-hmm. you you suffer with them, you appeal to the gospel like Jesus is here suffering with you and we're in this together. Um, if they're not a Christian, it's a whole other story. But, uh, but when yeah. it comes to where theology really does help is when you help establish good theology 
when not in those times of crisis. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. like I see people with solid theology, they get into times of crisis and they're like, I know God is good. I know he's faithful. I know he'll get us through this. Um, and they have a well-established theology, a well-established understanding of who God is, a well-established relationship, a well-established understanding of the Bible. And that helps carry them and some foundation for them. Uh, people who don't have that, people who have poor theology, a poor understanding of the Bible, even if they are Christians, um, they enter into suffering and everything seems a lot more turbulent. They're a lot less rooted, I, mm-hmm. I would say. And they tend to be a lot more um, anxious and like, I don't know exactly how to describe, but I, I don't know if you know what I'm saying, but like, Sure. They seem to be a lot more driven by the wind um, than some people James, who are more rooted and more understanding. James talks about that, right? Like uh, tossed mm-hmm. around by every wind of doctrine and yeah. and this idea that you don't have a, a grounding. And I think one of the major problems in the American church and why our theology of suffering in America, I think, is so poor has a lot to do with the health and wealth gospel, the, the prosperity mm-hmm. gospel that creeps in. Even if you don't go to a prosperity gospel church, there's so many people that believe like if I believe in God, good things are going to happen. If I believe in God, I'm going to be healed. If I believe in God, my life is going to be easier or better. Mm-hmm. And And even though that you might go somewhere that that's not taught. I think sometimes we implicitly start believing those things. And as a result, when bad things happen, our faith sometimes crumbles because we've believed wrongly. And so absolutely, I think wrong or false theology can build our house on sand that when the storm comes, it all washes away. And this is why Mm -hmm. we look to Christ and Christ alone. Uh, I think a a deeper theology of the resurrection really helps us weather storms uh, because when we look at Jesus um, so broken but unconcerned at the death of Lazarus he's broken he's he gets there he weeps he cries he mourns but he was unconcerned because he he knew the power of God and so I think that the the challenge of moving forward in this is really walking through a deeper understanding of the resurrection and what that means for Christians. And when you have a deep understanding of the resurrection and a, and a, and a trust that one day this will all go away and we will be brought back to life, uh, given new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth and all of that based on the promise of what's happened, it makes it palatable in a sense. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we, we don't uh, look at evil. Uh, Brooklyn Lou is here. Well, Lou, he says, good evening, guys. I find the best thing to do for people who suffer tragedy is to relate them as human beings. Empathy is vital. Being able to relate to someone else's feelings, 150%, Lou. And, and he I think says that, also after that, sometimes saying too much is not good. He followed up with that as well. Oh, there it is. Yeah, you're right. Um, and absolutely. And and I would say words words betray us most times, uh, even, even words thought out well. Um, can mm-hmm. can be the opposite of our intent. And I uh, hope and pray that if any of you have been listening that are feeling the weight of tragedy, that you've you've heard some of the hope that you can he- have in Christ, that there is hope, that the Christian worldview presents hope. Uh, and even though that does not necessarily change the pain right now, uh, there is something to look forward to. Interesting. Uh, Brooklyn Lou also commented as a non-believer, I would get very little else. Someone telling me religious thoughts, to be honest. Um, and interesting that he actually brings that up because I actually think of instantaneously, one of the first things I thought of is a scenario that I had. Um, so I roomed, I roomed with four uh, 
uh, three other guys in college, um, two of which were Christians, one of which was not. Um, and the one of which was not um, ended up going through a really rough period of time. He was going through like really hard depression and like mm. hardcore problems. Um, and I, he, and he, and he sat down with me and he was relaying with me. He was like, man, like, can you help me? Like I, he, he knew a little bit about my past and some of the stuff I dealt with. Um, and he was like, can you help me at all? And I remember I listened to him and I, I spent most of my time listening to him. I didn't, t- I didn't say much. Like I just let him t- talk for a while. Um, and when he asked for my advice, I, I did tell him like, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of my advice is rooted in my belief system. Um, so a lot of how I approached my problems, um, that I, that you're dealing with that some similar to what you are dealing with come from my perspective of as a Christian. So I did express that to him outright. I'm like, all, all the advice I would give you is going to come from a Christian perspective. And he was okay with that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did tell mm-hmm. him how I dealt with issues. And I did, I gave him some practical advice that could apply to anyone. Um, but then I also told him a little bit about my own religious perspective as of how I deal with suffering and dealt mm-hmm. with the things he was dealing with specifically. Mm-hmm. And so like when I, when I read that comment, I do think about that like, I would agree like my first step initiate whenever I talk to non-believers and I have before about suffering or when they're going through issues is again, listen, I, I just try to listen. I try to hear them out. And if they ask for my advice, I will be upfront with them right away and be like, I approach suffering from a Christian perspective. Hmm. So all the things I, how I deal with this suffering comes from that perspective. If you're willing to listen. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are in that regard. So, um, I know. I, I think I agree. I agree with all that. And I think that uh, seeing people as human beings is so important. And a lot of that means you're going to go into a situation and do a lot more listening than speaking. You're going to do a, a lot more uh, supporting than proving. Um, don't mm-hmm. don't try to leverage yeah. tragedy to, to get someone, quote unquote, into the kingdom and pray a prayer. Um, the Holy Spirit's already at work and moving. And if we as Christians believe that, um, we're there to be divine detectives to kind of see what God is already up to, not to try and um, strong arm someone uh, into a belief system that uh, emotionally and, and mentally is just not a, a good time to engage. Uh, so yeah. I, I want to share this to close out this topic. Um, and I, I have a friend of mine who... Uh, was very close to uh, the Covenant school shooting um, mm. uh, the, that happened a little while ago. And in, in hindsight of the, the main shooting and, and just a lot of these other things that are happening, he shared some pretty um, impactful things with me that I want to share with all of you that, that he found were so helpful in the midst of tragedy as a Christian and particularly in community. He said this, um, he said, Tolkien's idea of uh i can't even pronounce the word uh you catastrophe has been a huge to me during this season the concept of an unknown or sudden good from a horrid circumstances so this idea that um god can even take something good and beautiful out of the horrid out of the horrible we see that with joseph uh in the old testament um his main thing he said, he said, community, community, community. I don't know how many people get by without solid church families. Therapists and counselors who were present in the aftermath of the shootings told our people they never witnessed such hope in a people. And I think that that happens in community. And then lastly, he shared, he said last, and it won't surprise and it won't 
doesn't surprise me at all. It says, sing songs that are worthwhile before tragedy strikes. Ones that prepare you for when tragedy happens ahead of time. Uh, singing on Jordan's Stormy Banks uh, or something along those lines. Uh, those types of songs that stick with you, that have theology-rich understanding or places to go to weather those storms. And I think those are some of the things that uh, I appreciate hearing because I wouldn't have necessarily thought about music right away mm -hmm. as a Christian. But to hear that, I go, absolutely. Like to, to have songs as part of our worship that we just fall into um, that impact what, what we sing and what we say, uh, I think is helpful. Uh, so that that's that uh, Lou has another comment here. I want to bring it forward. We all have human emotions and they are pretty common to all of us. Yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's easy for us to get uh, caught up. He says, I know this is crazy, but I would advise Christians to use their faith. Uh, I, but I advise Christians to use their faith to get over tragedy. I do not offer atheist advice to Christians. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. And, and like Dylan said, I, I would approach every human being differently. Uh, we can't give you a, uh, um, a cookie cutter here. If we could, um, we would be writing a book on pastoral ministry and handing it to every pastor. Um, but we can't do that. Um, and this is where community and relationship matter more. Uh, I've been thinking a lot how to pivot out of this. I don't think there's I like a how, way. I, I love how we picked a very heavy topic on like Halloween and, you know, like a day that a lot of people are just out there having fun right now and just, you know, doing their thing. We're like, you know what? Let's talk about suffering. <laughs> so let, let's keep talking about hope though. Um, <laughs> hope in the midst of suffering. And that means we're going to talk about life after death. So there's, there's our transition. Is a trailer coming from Angel Studios. I, I can't quite tell. Um, I think... Uh, that this is kind of being put out to be uh, an ev evangelistic movie is how I take – you'll see from the trailer. I, I, yeah, I didn't actually watch the full trailer. At first, I thought it might be a, like a documentary as well. I wasn't entirely sure, but I'm a, I don't think it is. I, is it? That's it's what it feels like. Yeah, let's watch, let's watch the trailer, and you guys can tell me what you think too. Here we go. Uh, let's hope. Hey, hey, YouTube world, this is uh, fair use. Don't don't shut down the stream, please. Resuscitate. I can't be dead because doctors resuscitate. I can't be dead because I've never felt more alive. I've never heard these experiences before. Hogwash. It was 1969. So clearly, the movie's out already. It's October 31st, and this is on October 27th, so we're a little bit behind, but let's, let's see what they have to say. A beautiful day to fly. We were about 100 feet above the ground when... I can't unhear. I'll stop. I'll let it play, but I have to say this because the, I kept thinking that when I closed my eyes, I could hear John Piper. This guy sounds just like John Piper, the narrator. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even have thought of it until you mentioned it. But now you can't unhear it. I started noticing that something was wrong. It was engine failure. Trees were filling our windshield. I found myself above the crash site. 
And while I'm processing what I'm looking at, I can see a pilot. And this is me. No two near-death So you can already probably guess, and you just heard it there, that this is a movie engaging people who have had near-death experiences. And so that, mm -hmm. that story there from a pilot having an outer body vision experience, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then they're going to go through a few other folks here in this trailer who have had similar. Let's keep watching. Experiences are the same. Out of nowhere, a trailer truck kept me head on. But they typically occur in a very consistent process. We began to go down the river and my boat became pinned. I was drowning. The first thing that happens is called an out-of-body experience. And they come to a place of exquisite beauty. They very commonly see a light. Deceased relatives come to meet them. The first person I saw was my grandfather. Now I'm traveling like a rocket ship, straight upwards. And with that... <laughs> oh my God, I'm alive! Now, I do wonder how much of what has happened here is also influenced by things they've already seen and hear, but I, I don't know. But not every near-death experience is a good one. 23% had hellish experiences. I saw a black tunnel. I was just falling. I wasn't in fear, I was in terror. It was just darkness. Put me back. I don't belong here. I heard a voice before I woke up. You still have a purpose on Earth. I was very skeptical. I never felt alive and then dead. I felt alive and then more alive. I had full brain recordings from the dying human brain. Even though they were unconscious, they were able to give corroborative evidence. She's described herself that she just shouldn't know. The same right. You can't be mystified by that question. What happens after you die? This really does show that there is life after death. I'm Don Piper. And then, hey, and then Don Piper. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a little uh, infomercial uh, for 90 Minutes in Heaven uh, after that. Um, what do you think about the claim that near-death experiences prove life after death? Oh, that's a bunch of baloney from a philosophical standpoint. But <laughs> uh, I actually I, I picked up I, I picked up this book. Where is it? Where there is it, it is. Miracles, miracles. Both <laughs> both of them by Craig Keener. Anyway, I just I just had to point those out because Craig Keener uh, he doesn't just do. Um, near-death experiences or whatever but he also um covers a lot of other things but he he did a historical approach to trying to show that miracles still happen today and things like that and he historically records miracle claims and things like that so i just thought that was interesting i read a little bit of those books not the whole thing but just a little bit here and there and this but, is the one um, that i've read but this is the one that I've I've listened to some podcasts from from Lee Strobel and he's dealing mm -hmm. with a lot of the same stuff in this, uh, the case yeah. for heaven, uh, similar. But, stuff. um, but you asked me, so <laughs> before I just kind of gave you a little shorthand, uh, <laughs> yeah, the claim that life, the near death experiences or whatever is 
proof that there's an afterlife? I, was that the question? I forget what you, how you exactly worded Yeah, basically, it. that they, they said that this is proof that there is life after death. Yeah, that's philosophically really weak. Um, purely from a philosophical standpoint, I'm not saying um, emotionally it's not persuasive to people. Um, but the, the, the problem is you have to assume that near-death experiences are rational, conscious experiences in a sense. And so what I mean by that is you would have to assume that there isn't a psychological factor taking place that happens during death and causes you to have these visions of grandeur sure. and stuff. Yeah. So the, the issue is it's hard to establish philosophically. That's actually a strong grounds for a heaven. Normally where uh, for an afterlife, normally where the miracle claims where people try to get answers for is some of the inexplicable things. So mm -hmm. for instance, um, in the case of, I think in the book of miracles is mentioned, there was a case of a guy who had a near death experience at a hospital and he had an out of body experience and he, um, it was recorded by this was recorded by the doctors in like a medical journal and different things apparently um so like reliable sources but he had, he had an out-of-body experience and he could see he, he raised up and he could watch he watched the surgery take place um and when he when he came back to he he said he basically he said he watched the whole thing um and he told them that he knew what happened to the guy in the other surgery room um and what and what happened to him and what he had and all those things and there, the doctors had no idea how he knew and he also knew the serial number of one of the equipment and the serial number was on the top of the equipment above where anyone could possibly see it without being on the mm -hmm. ceiling itself um so cases like that people are like well if he didn't have how would he have known that if he didn't have mm -hmm. some sort of spiritual sure leaving of his body and, and no one really knows no one really knows the answer then and it um, sounded but, like that's but, what they were getting to in the, in yeah. the film yeah so those, I'm not saying there aren't things that are hard to explain, but to purely make that statement is, from a philosophical standpoint, really hard to establish because the mind is very powerful. Yeah, well, and, and it doesn't help when you have things like uh, books like Heaven is for Real being shown to be a complete fake. Um, yeah. And that little boy was basically coerced to, to tell these stories. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that um, a healthy... Uh, amount of skepticism when coming into this is, is appropriate. Um, and yeah. It's not demeaning to the people, but I think a, a healthy skepticism that's willing to listen. I, I do think that I we as Christians we shouldn't be surprised that people would have um, end of life uh, moments or encounters. Um, mm -hmm. But it also is interesting. Are are those across cultures across? Yeah. Uh, well, I think also yeah. when when it comes to near death experiences, I think sometimes people have this from a Christian at least from a Christian perspective, they see it like this it's almost like this limbo phase <laughs> where like people are like, "Oh, you know, the body, the spirit didn't actually know it was dying or not." So it kind of went into this limbo phase, but then it came back. Like, I don't know, like I feel like Christians sometimes have this weird perspective of near death experiences uh when in reality if if anyone's having if if anyone's having a legitimate vision um, it's coming from God. God's allowing them to have a vision to awaken them spiritually or to bring mm -hmm. some sort of revelation or something like there's a purpose to it that God is trying to establish. Um, and it's not just like, you know, that your spirit experienced some sort of confusion 
um, and your mm-hmm. body didn't know if it was dying or not. Like, no, like God, if God wants you to have a vision, he's going to let you have a vision for whatever purpose it serves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in some cases when people have near death experiences, um, some of the things they see and stuff can just be your body, your, your mind reacting can be your, your brain reacting to trauma and trying to cope with it. Um, but not saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's touchy. Well, and, 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 and that's why I, I would encourage if, if someone wants, wants to see is that the thing that I, I become skeptical more so of a movie like this, because I feel like a movie like this is going to heavily rely on the emotion yeah. Like very much so versus reading a book like um, Miracles or like The Case for Heaven or some of these others that are going to be more um, evidence-based uh, yeah. in a less emotional sense. That doesn't mean don't watch it, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't use this as an apologetic to prove to and, someone. And the, difficult, and the difficult part is there are cases of people who aren't Christians also having similar experiences. Sure. And some of them do see heaven and see wonderful things and see their their dead relatives or whatever. And you don't, I you don't see Christians going out and being like, oh, you know, this proves that uh, you know heaven's real or whatever. Um, and also, like you know, people can have people from different belief systems can have these experiences, and sometimes people will even say that they're being deceived, that they're being deceived into a false hope. Um, because the devil comes in the angel, as an angel of light sometimes. So I, I'm just one of those people that I just don't, I don't put a lot of weight on these type of things. Um, I'm generally skeptical, skeptical, and I'm generally of the, of the mind of there's many things that can take place, many wonders and things that can take place that aren't always from God. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, and, and I think that put it this way, um, and this is the same thing that I saw, uh, and I Lou Lou commented. I think both these comments are, are helpful. Uh, I see near death experiences as just that. Definitely not death. The brain is still active, and the human brain is extremely complex. It is also both conscious and subconscious dream world. And then he says, "I seriously smoke a lot of pot, and when I am high, I am in a type of alternate mindset. Yeah. I'm not dead." One, well, and, and I think that. And, and I think, Lou, you would agree with this. Um, no one should base their spiritual beliefs off of something that happens that might be um, alternate dream state or yeah. something that happens when you're doing drugs because a lot of people will base things. Uh, I mean, there's a whole movement of, of doing of mushrooms, of taking psychedelics, having spiritual experiences and calling those spiritual experiences that you're encountering God, I mean, it's that's a thing. And there's yeah. people actually when that you, are Christians you, doing this, and it's you shouldn't base who, anything off that. People who generally give themselves over to um, a belief systems that encourage you to simply believe what you feel or experience from a psychedelic or um, you know something like that, they are. V- very destructive more times than not they mm-hmm. either a they tend to be cults there a lot of them end up being cults and the mm-hmm. leaders take advantage of their people um aka uh the mason Ma- Ma- manson murder people the, that yeah, was a yeah, yeah. they were all up in the psychedelics they were all up in the drugs and sex mm-hmm. um but then you also have the cases of people who do that they don't have logical worldviews they don't make any logical sense they're very weird 
Um, mm-hmm. And when you ask them to make a coherent belief system, they don't because all they do is base it off experiences and, and mind and stuff. And your mind is very creative and it can create scenarios that don't make any sense together. Um, so yeah, the, anything, anyone who bases a belief system off drugs or experiences like that, or in psych, like a psychological phenomenon that doesn't make sense, they go down dangerous paths and they, they start going down really destructive paths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, what wasn't a, uh, psychological phenomenon, the reformation. Oh no. <laughs> That's Hard right. Pivot. That's right. It's Reformation Day. Uh, (laughs) 506 years ago today, Martin Luther um, started something that he didn't intend to even start. But we're going to we're going to trace through the Reformation uh, by uh, doing that through this Twitter thread, which is presenting the story of the Reformation in Friends Gifts. First one established. Have you ever watched Friends? I have. Okay, I am going to be one of the most clueless people here. That's perfect. I've seen maybe I've seen maybe like one episode of Friends my entire life. Like sitcoms have never appealed to me. I've I've always sort of hated sitcoms. Well, here we go. So, uh, Reformation told through Friends gifts. One day, oh, a man named Martin Luther was shocked to find that indulgences were being sold in a corrupt way. Oh, for crying out loud! Here we go. And it keeps going. He was a monk and a teacher at the University of Wittenberg. Well, he was a monk. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, he was. Uh, and it was, that's why he, he says if there, if there ever was someone who could get to heaven based on monkery, it would be him. He was the monk of monks. Uh, he, he did everything, the prayers and, and everything to the best he could. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, he did. He decided to notify the church of his complaints. Now you may not know um, that's basically um, Ross's version of of a middle finger. Okay, so that's what that's what that's meant to be. It's going to come up a few times, uh, so at least that way you have a little bit of the context. Um, Pope Leo took this very well, and he gives the middle finger back. <laughs> Luther was summoned to answer for his beliefs before Cardinal Cajetan. Cajetan? I don't even know how to pronounce that, and I should, I no idea. but I don't. Evil laugh. <laughs> Their conversation did not go well. Another professor named Johann Eck decided to take charge of the situation. Yeah, I think people have I think people have way too much time on their hands. That's all I gotta say. This is awesome. What are you talking about? He showed up in style to debate Luther. Here he is, showing up in style, riding a white horse. That's well, a dog, actually. Eck made some like a horse. No, Eck made some strong points. <laughs> Luther realized it was time to take a stand. He declared that the po- that popes and church councils could err. You really crossed a line here. Oh, yeah, the Catholic Church really felt it after that. Uh, Eck <laughs> felt triumphant, and that's how it's done. But Luther kept saying things that annoyed the Pope. More middle <laughs> fingers. So the Pope threatened Luther with excommunication. Maybe we should just take a break. Luther responded, as you might expect, fine by me. So the Pope officially excommunicated him. We're so over. 
Luther was then summoned to appear before the emperor. Why do bad things happen to good people? They demanded Luther recant, but he said, ew, no. (laughs) But suddenly Luther realized he had another problem. People who were taking reform too far. Pivot. (laughs) Pivot. A dude named Zwingli was winning over many of Luther's supporters with his views on the Eucharist. How you doing? (laughs) Luther did not take this very well. Hey! At the Marburg Colloquy, things got a bit testy. Shoves him over the couch. But Luther always had his fellow professor, Melanchthon, to support him. You know, what's interesting is that I also realize I don't have, I don't, I don't fully history of Luther either. So this is, you know, I'm learning about friends in Luther simultaneously. Oh, we can learn more about Luther if we need to, except for certain rare moments where they didn't get along. The end. Happy Reformation Day. Celebrate in style. Watch tell. I want to sit in a comfortable chair, watch television and go to sleep at a reasonable hour. Don't we all? Now we could watch this five minute breakdown from uh <laughs> if we wanted to the story of martin luther but we don't need to uh, uh I, I i think we're good for tonight <laughs> <laughs> that's why i'm wearing my this is my costume martin luther uh t-shirt uh i find it too fun but i think it's also and i poked fun at this in the why jesus chat earlier um that i think that even for those who would not necessarily um consider themselves reformed I think you there should at least still be a recognition that what happened in the Reformation was not only needed but good. Um, and well, the, I mean, Catholics would disagree. Yeah, and they can. Orthodox um, would disagree. They and they can too, and I would disagree <laughs> with them. Um, so I actually, I actually have an uh, Orthodox friend, um, Eastern Orthodox friend, and uh, every once in a while, you know, a little bit of banter back and forth about Luther, you know, but. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's there's quite a bit more uh, that could be had there. I have one friend who I went to college with and ended up being, uh, I'm pretty sure he's Greek Orthodox, and he went mm. through the whole seminary process, did all that. Uh, so yeah, I, I I can I can respect and disagree. Uh, we already we disagree on stuff too, so it's not no impossible. Impo- yeah, no, we don't disagree on anything. Not at all. Um, I mean, if if I, I just told, don't baptize babies because you know it's not well, the <laughs> If I if I told you, if John Calvin knew that I was on a podcast for an for an hour and a, and change now with an Anabaptist, he would lose his mind. But that's okay. I don't mind. It's all right. It's all right. Anabaptists are used to getting uh, clobbered over the head by <laughs> um, violent violent. You know, reformed people, <laughs> violent Baptists. Hey, I'm Presbyterian, so you, you go take it up with the with the Baptists. But so, any any further thoughts on anything we've talked about? Those of you that are here, um, it's been a been a good time hanging out, chatting. Um, hopefully, been some helpful things. If you just showed up, you missed some of the earlier conversation. Make sure you hit that rewind and go watch it and hit that like button. If you haven't already, we chatted a little bit about, or actually the, the bulk of our conversation tonight was about how to approach tragedy. Um, that way the thumbnail and the title's not clickbait. The rest was 
was just the icing and the cherry on top. So any any parting thoughts, other things you want to want to share or or we're thinking of in these conversations or something you forgot to mention earlier? No, I think we I think we covered a good bit of it. I hope so. I hope it was helpful. I hope, I hope so. it was encouraging. Just uh, the two of us, you know. No John, no other people. Yeah, John didn't show up. What was that? Uh, Brooklyn Lou says, Luther was a Catholic in the same way Jesus was a Jew. No Judaism equals no Christianity. No Catholicism equals no Protestantism. Yeah, without C- Catholics, we wouldn't have Protestants. That is true. Um, and without mm. Jews, we wouldn't have Christianity. That also is true. Uh, so that there is something to be thankful for there in, in that regard. I, I do think um, there was a video that uh, Gavin Ortland, Gavin? Gavin Ortland did today on, or maybe a day or two ago on the, the reasons for the, the reformation. And he used Catholic uh, documents only uh, to basically show so that there was no bias. So Catholic historians, Catholic folks like that. I thought that was a helpful video. If you're looking in, want to look into that history more, I'd point you that direction. But if you're not looking for that, don't go looking for it because you won't enjoy it. What about Orthodox historians, because Orthodox disagree with Catholics. <laughs> they do. They do. And Orthodox true. are Orthodox. I I found that Eastern Orthodox often also tend to be even more strong about the fact that they are the original church. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. Like Catholics tend to say they're the universal church, but <laughs> as of recent popes and recent decrees, they tend to be a little bit less stringent. But Orthodox, they tend to be pretty strong about the fact that they are the original church. Uh, Jesus Christ is is <laughs> the the head of the church, so follow him. Um, and I will say that I'm most appreciative because I didn't grow up I didn't grow up in Reformed theology, so it's something that mm-hmm. I've come to later um, in studies and in in life. And I'm appreciative. But how did you grow up again? I grew up uh, not well, basically Baptist. But okay. um, part of the Plymouth Brethren denomination, so Congregational Baptist, um, but the do- Plymouth Brethren doesn't even really exist. But there's Brethren churches around. So my dad's a lay lay pastor there and has been at the same church my whole life. So um, that's pushing close to 40 years at this point, So, <laughs> which is pretty wild. So guys, thanks for hanging out. Uh, this was a good time. This was fun. Uh, it was a good time to just hang, chat, and I hope and pray that it has been an encouragement to you. Make sure you have subscribed if you haven't already and turn on that bell so you know when we go live. We will be chopping this video up into some shorter ones for you to consume and share and all of that good stuff. Um, we'll get, be getting to that soon. And, and keep watching out. We'll be having some awesome conversations in November. And if you have ideas and or things you would like us to cover, throw those down in the chat. That would be awesome. We'd love to answer specific questions that you might have and hopefully maybe even get to answering the big question, why Jesus? Thanks for watching this episode of the Why Jesus Podcast. Make sure you click that bell for notifications so you don't miss the next time we go live and answer the most important question, Why Jesus? We'll see you live every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Until next time, peace.